Hello everybody, welcome to Game Night. I'm your host, Dornal. Joining me tonight is our wonderful co-host, Daddy Warpig. Our special guest tonight, we're hanging out with Mark Kern. He's a veteran of the gaming industry, formerly a Blizzard. For those of you who don't know, he's responsible for countless breakups, bad grades, and hours of fun on World of Warcraft and Diablo 2, among yeah. others. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, just uh, it's every, it's every topic that that I like that you guys talk about. So this is this is gonna be fun. Oh, I'm I'm happy to hear that. Um, no, now we're gonna talk about a lot of stuff tonight. Normally we're focused on like the tabletop RPGs here, but any game is welcome on game night. So uh, I know that recently you've been doing a lot of work on your uh, new. Um, massive online game ember that's right um we've been uh we had our third successful crowdfunding we approach it a little differently we have it in uh, in what we call milestone funding where we sort of deliver small uh goals along the way and each one has been five or six hundred percent funded and the last one just sort of blew us away um as we uh got the funding to build a playable mock-up which we're going to use to uh, start a Kickstarter uh, in January timeframe uh, for the game itself, and it's a it's, it's massive, but it's not an MMO. So I just I just want to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a little bit of confusion on that, at least on on my part, uh, because it sounds like you've got sort of you, you're you're putting a few different play styles together and sort of creating a, a, like a combined experience because I, I, I read about things like uh, mining and crafting where you, you actually provide other players with materials but the, the, the heart of the combat is, is a shooter. Uh, so, it, so I sort of get like a battlefield feel from it. Yeah, it's, um, it is a somewhat of a unique blend although we have attempted parts of this before in my prior game Firefall before they they changed it they changed it at launch from a an open world shooter into a traditional sort of wow game with guns uh but before i left what we were trying to do was essentially create a a online shooter first experience in a persistent world so that was a huge endeavor we're, we're taking a smaller slice of that the best analogy i could think think about is if you imagine a planet side or planet side 2 style game where you have sort of massive battles, uh, except instead of player versus player, it's PVE, and you're fighting an NPC AI-controlled um, alien army of shapeshifters that have giant kaiju at their disposal. So the idea is that you're, you're in these small mechanized uh, mechs going up against much larger beasts and also uh, these same-sized shape-shifting aliens that can go between beast form and human form. And you have bases, and you have uh, crafting components to that as well. That's, that sounds like a, a time sink right up your alley. And, and we've, got, um, we've got some very pro-kaiju people who listen to this show, so you just made a lot of fans right there. Oh, I, I, I totally want to see. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just fascinated with it. I grew up in Japan, right? Right? So I was watching these movies as a kid in Japan in the theaters, like Ultraman I saw in the theater. And, um, you know, so Japan has always been a huge influence on me, and, and, and the kaiju sort of thing kind of stuck with me. 
And I'll tell you why. It's because Firefall, we had jetpacks and we had a lot of verticality, but there was nothing to fight with that verticality. You were always just sort of, you know, everything was the same size or smaller creature than you. And people were just using it to sort of bunny hop and stay in the air and shoot down at other players, uh, I mean, uh, other enemies. And what I wanted to do was give you a reason. So I want Kaiju to be big enough where you need to jet up to them, maybe wall run against their flanks. Um, and they've got generators and other technology that the see who aliens have implanted in them to control them and give them additional weapons and, and gear. And you can sort of take those out, um, uh, you know, before you can take out the main Kaiju. So that's that was kind of the inspiration. Was really was like, well, we've got jetpacks. Let's give let's give let's give players something to shoot at with the jetpacks. Man, I approve. That was one of the best. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the best aspects of Mech Warrior Two. Is once you jumped out of your mech and you were the really really small guy, where you could use that jetpack to get around the battlefield and try and hack your way into another mech. Just being the small guy, you'd get squashed. You'd get totally eviscerated if you stood still. But if you used your mobility, you could move around the battlefield enough to avoid getting dead, and it was a, a lot more challenging. So it was nice to have both of those kind of gameplays together. You know, I was encouraged recently by the E3 trailer of a game called, um, I guess, is it called Extinction, which is sort of a human versus Titan game. I guess it's more of a fantasy thing. Have you seen that guy with a sword running around and he jumps up against a huge monster and and it's it's pretty pretty staged. Like you have to like take out his manacles and start chopping off his limbs. It's cartoony graphics before you can take him down. I haven't seen it. I've actually played Extinction. It's a five-player, four-on-one, asymmetrical uh, PvP. So one person plays the giant monster, and then four other people play hunters. You've got to bring down the giant monster. Oh, it's out? I thought it wasn't out yet. I think Extinction's been out for a oh. couple of years. Oh, you're thinking Evolve. Oh, am I thinking Evolve? Oh, I'm sorry. My apologies. Yeah, no, uh, Extinction uh, is... Is, is I think they just announced the trailer at E3. But in Evolve, the, the monster's not that big. We're talking, and in both uh, Extinction, Googling it now, and in Ember, we're talking about, uh, you know, beasts that get pretty large. I did not see this trailer. We're going to we're gonna have to check it out later. <laughs> I did, I did like, almost daily posts of E3. I watched everything I could. I watched all <laughs> six. I watched all six of the uh, um, of the, the press conferences. I watched Nintendo's, Microsoft's, the Xbox one. I watched all of them, and I missed this somehow. I, I did, too. I didn't hear about this until, I guess, someone in our, in our fandom mentioned it. And I, I looked at it, and I was like, oh, cool. This is kind of like, it's nice to see how they're handling their, their giant base combat uh, for this. Uh, qu question from the chat. Nathan Housley is asking, are we talking about the same scale as Shadow of the Colossus? No, that's really big. So I think we're somewhere in between. Um, <coughs> the um, Although I'd like to see how big we can get. The initial... And that's what she said. We, we do this in phases, right? And so we do have, um, at launch, we're only promising a certain size of kaiju. Uh, probably, we, we arranged 
in sort of homage to a lot of anime as well as Pacific Rim in categories. So we've got Cat 3, Cat 4, and you know, you're really talking about Shadow of the Colossus would be our Cat 6, which is one of our largest uh, kaiju, and we don't have any plans at, at launch for that. A lot of it depends on our prototype, earlier prototypes with uh, uh, smaller kaiju and what we can do there. Uh, but imagine, I mean, this is multiplayer, so it's a swarm of you versus one of these things. It's not just one of you. Yeah, sort of like what what you wish the raid boss was in World of Warcraft. Yeah, the dragon's big. Yeah, he'll eat the tank in two hits. But uh, it just didn't seem big enough when all you could do is sort of run around on the floor of the cave and hop. Yeah, I don't think I'll be happy until I can stand on the back of one and shoot down at its shield generators and blast out huge chunks of kaiju meat. Delicious kaiju meat. <laughs> Now, I, I don't have any questions. This oh, that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean awful in terms of the game. I mean awful for the people living on that planet. <laughs> um, I mean, here I am, just minding my own business, mining some ore on this planet, and the huge chunk of kaiju meat comes down on, on what are you going to do? <laughs> have a barbecue, Texas style. My question was this, because I, I was curious about this, and, and I got this impression, but I haven't taken the time to verify it. Is your game that you're developing related at all to the role-playing game, to the tabletop role-playing game you, you made recently? You know, that's an interesting story. Uh, I started out wanting to, do, do, wanting to get away from video games and go into tabletop, and I'd been a traveler fan from way back. And <laughs> it was one of the first tabletop games I ever picked up, I think, along with uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I remember, I don't know if you remember, it came in a box set with a hexagon star map and a couple of black booklets with a really nice red stripe on them. Yes. And uh, this is the Free Trader Beowulf. Uh, that's the yes. on the, the Free Trader Beowulf who's in deep trouble. That's right. And that sucked me in, and I was, I was, and I went through the character generator, and to this day, I think it's the only character generator in which you can die before your character actually gets made. Womp womp. <laughs> which was interesting, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I was, the part that I really liked about Traveler was I was having trouble getting my friends to sort of understand the, the role-playing aspects of it. Remember, I mean, we were all kind of new to D&D, &D, and actually the whole genre was kind of new at the time. I mean, I'm sure people have been playing it for 10 years before me, but uh, to my community, it was, it was very new. Um, and so when we looked at this, I think the part that appealed to me the most was the spacecraft. I mean, they had all these rules on how to build spacecraft in Traveler, and I really wanted to to do that. And I was also interested in, in very uh, old video games with spacecraft, like um, an old game called Sundog. You remember that on 8-bit computers? Not me. I'm so dating, so dating myself right now. Oh, totally, totally. I, I, I personally, I started, uh, I started in a D and D, so I, I missed the D and D Traveler days by just a couple of years. Which has oh, made yeah. this whole thing fascinating, by the way. 
uh, because uh, all the people that we've been talking to have sort of slightly different takes on on their their gaming uh, than you do. So it, it's been this this great. If you have listened to the other game nights, like it's been this great experience talking to uh, other folks like Jeffro and and Bradford Walker and them, who who all come from that old school background, but slightly different views on it. Uh, so it's really cool to hear, like what brings people into the gaming, like what what appeals to them about it. Oh, remember, I was growing up overseas too in Southeast Asia, so these books were like precious they were rare you couldn't just you know mail order them or go into a hobby store and get them i remember having to uh fly to hong kong which was a big shopping hub and it was under the uh, united kingdom at the time hong kong was owned by the united kingdom and there was a gaming shop there and, and that's where i saw a traveler and that's where i picked it up because i knew i couldn't get it anywhere else um eventually you know mark miller and i got to know each other the the, the creator of Traveler, and I've, I've tried to buy Traveler for, from him several times, <laughs> um, I, and I almost succeeded once, but he's, he's smarter than that, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I, was, I was unable to, to buy the universe, but, uh, um, but I decided, well, there's one aspect of that that I'd really like to see developed even more. I mean, Traveler is a great, a great system. I mean, there's many variants out there, and everyone's got their favorite version. Uh, mine, you know, I, I don't think I've ever successfully completed one of the classic games of Traveler, but I love that spaceship section so much, I wanted to make a spaceship-oriented tabletop. And what I mean by that is um, I wanted to have adventures in my spacecraft grouped with other players in their spacecraft. If you've ever played an MMO uh, called Earth and Beyond, one of the early ones from Westwood Studios, a, a longtime former rival, Blizzard, uh, they had an MMO with, and you could group up as spaceships in formation and kind of like go and take out pirates together and things like that. That was kind of the feeling that I'm trying to capture in our tabletop passion project uh, called Crixa, which was, serves as the sort of background universe setting for M for the video game. Okay, so that, I guess that sort of answers my question because I was wondering like each game has its own sort of style or expected play style and and you're really most interested in that that uh, spaceship spacefaring space combat sort of play like is because it sounds like you could play just play a whole game of Crixa just as a miniatures game Exactly, and move from encounter to encounter, and your, your spacecraft is as much of a character as you are. I mean, there's tons of games out there that do, do sci-fi role-playing well, uh, but I haven't found enough that really scratch my itch for sort of like, you know, um, spacecraft combat. And I, and I don't mean it from a PvP perspective, although that's, that, that certainly is, is doable. I really mean it from the fact that, you know, you know these are smaller. These could be smaller ships, or these could be capital ships, and you can have anything from small adventures where you're wending your way through through a planetary system, and you have different encounters along the way as you try to get to the planet, all the way to you know, hey, you're you're on capital ships and you're fighting some sort of interstellar space opera war. That's those are the kind of adventures that I'm I'm trying to get together here on tabletop. 
I had a question um, because I saw uh, the uh, website and the other art that you've put out for um, Crixa. And actually, I, I want to tell this story because this is a real story. This literally happened. Uh, I was looking at art um, on ArtStation, uh, which is a great resource for uh, cover artists or other illustrators. If people listening are looking for illustrators for their books, for color or black and white, ArtStation is a great resource. Um, and I saw this guy and I'm like, oh, that looks awesome. I love it. And I was flipping through his portfolio and each piece was just really incredible. And then when I went and looked at his um, bio, it said, working on the Crixa RPG. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> Mark totally got him. I did. I did. That's called Price. And he's a former art director at Ubisoft. And he makes these fantastic spaceship paintings that, um, that I, I was looking for this stuff. I was looking for an updated version of Chris Voss. Do you, do you know who Chris Voss is? Nope. Okay. Chris Voss if you ever read a sci-fi book that was written in the 60s and 70s, he did all the, like so many covers for Asimov and for other people. And he had these wonderful books of spaceship art and these old relics. And that art style really spoke to me. A game that took, that was inspired by that art style is Homeworld. If you've ever played the video game Homeworld, that's a Chris Frost inspired sort of uh, design. Chris is still designed designing stuff. If you watch Guardians of the Galaxy, those are his designs in there, obviously updated. Um, but I was looking for that style, and I stumbled upon Carl Price, and he's not only an amazing artist, he's, he's very fast. So I, I'm sitting on a ton of spaceship art that we've already created to sort of for the look and feel of, of the, uh, the Crixa game, uh, all done by his, you know, his, his wonderful talent. So. I I do know Chris Foss because um, there is a Twitter account that's 1970s sci-fi art, uh, and they tweet out a uh, tweet out a ton of cover pictures uh, every now and then. And so his really really unique, um, almost geometric paintings on top of the structure of the spaceship, uh, where he's got um, you know he's got the checkerboard squares that are yellow and black, and he's got uh, red and yellow uh, hash marks, and he's got solid blue and white. It's very, very distinctive. Oh um, yeah, it, it's it's very it's it's a very it's sort of like graphic design slapped on top of really interesting uh, shapes and forms that are very uh, <clears throat> massive feeling and mysterious feeling. You get a sense of mystery when you look at these ships, and you just want to go explore them. Well, I see why you like the guy. Just looking at some of the examples of his work, um, it, it, just like you were saying, putting that graphic design on top of those shapes, it, it's it's an artist who bothers to ask, okay, what if all the like when you watch sci-fi movies and stuff in the future, the, uh, especially the the bad ones, uh, it's everything's not formless but colorless. You know, everything's like monochrome or all metal or all glass. You know, walk through you know walk through a modern city center these days, but these paintings, they're like you know, let's put color on these. Uh, like, imagine the ancient Greek statues. Uh, you remember that they painted the statues and they painted the columns and everything like that. And and you've got the same thing going on in Rusa. Right. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, numbers and stripes and and patterns on top of really strange shapes that 
make you make you think what does this craft do what is it for um how does it function <clears throat> and you know I, I and there's there's so much art that um that that we've generated for the game ready that um you know i was going full bore i was going to go um into the the 1.0 rule set and start playing it here at the with my friends in the local hobby store and uh and then a funny thing happened on the way <laughs> we we you know we had a situation where, where i guess i don't know maybe the firefall servers had experienced their first shutdown on on steam and everyone there was no word and everyone thought the game was being canceled and players started asking if i would you know buy the ip and, and revive firefall and i tried i i you know i guess i'm really bad at offering to buy other people buy IPs because Mark Miller wouldn't sell it to me twice. <laughs> and now oh. I'm trying to buy Firefall, and um, and they and then they weren't having it. They they released a statement saying uh, that uh, Firefall's future was well and healthy, and three months later they fired everybody at the studio, unfortunately. Uh, but that, I mean, you know, I was ready to run with that, but when they wouldn't do it, fans still wanted a uh, the original vision of Firefall, these sort of inv the invasion systems. So uh, in Firefall, the aliens were called the Chosen, and the ultimate bad guy was the melding of an energy source that had come into this dimension to sort of disassemble our universe for, for energy. And uh, players remember that we had these massive invasions in the zones, and they would have to go around and, and fight them off the watchtower and the cities. And so I said, well, if they're not going to let me have Firefall, I could bake this into the Crixley universe, because... As the Crixley universe is a story of 28 different human colonies that are separated by the lack then of light speed travel. And so they diverged. And so they're very diverse, um, even biologically in some cases, as they sort of evolved hundreds of years apart from each other. The, the neat thing is that they could still communicate. They have tachyon communication. They're able to actually talk to each other in real time. And uh, there's stuff related to, to the the game and, and, and a book I'm working on related to that, where they're actually all playing an MMO together, a fantasy MMO in this universe. Anyways, that's a little side story. But uh, so you have these diverging colonies, and one of them is, is the Gate Striders. And the Gate Striders, uh, when faster than light travel was invented through, through jump gates, uh, uh, they had to, to sort of build these gates, but you didn't know what was on the other side. And you, and you, and you couldn't send a probe back because the nature of tachyon communications means you need to know exactly the term destination in order to beam a message back. So probes couldn't send information back to the gate. You had to go through with a team and build a return gate over, even with modular pieces, it's a process that took at least several weeks, if not months. Uh, and so, the, you know, one of these factions, the gate drivers would go through and sort of discover, be sort of like the frontiers, uh, uh, frontiers uh, people that, that go out and discover new stuff. And they would, they would come back with the information after several weeks or that you'd never hear from them again. They could fall into a black hole or you don't know what so ember is a planet that gets discovered by these gate striders and it has a very unique property because it's actually first contact for the humans with an alien species uh, that's truly xeno not like the divergent colonies that started so that is sort of the short version of the lore backstory of how the two games fit together if you think about it in, in tabletop terms the gate striders and ember is a is one for the game, the tabletop game. 
Sure, or like, or one story that could be told that sort of is implied by the universe, or or, or follows from from the universe. Exactly. So, when you were designing a game, um, did you do the mechanical design, the game mechanical design yourself? Uh, it's it, never on a big team. It's always a group effort. Um, you know, for uh, and for WoW, I was much more of a team lead. It was building a whole company around the game, not just, you know, producing and managing the game itself. Uh, although the parts I did work on were the, the UI system and the quest system, uh, exclamation points over people's heads, the format of how we do questing, all that stuff. But as time went on, it just got too big. And we, we have... We had people split all along those duties, uh, and I was managing more and more of just, you know, getting the game and the company around the game shifted into a service-oriented sort of thing. In Firefall, yeah, I was much more hands-on on mechanics uh, up until tiers during beta, and then again, sort of the business side pulled me away as we were dealing more and more with our investors, the nine, and, um, you know, the team took on the responsibility of the rest of the design at that point, and we started to, to see a lot of changes then. So, you know, I think what I, the lesson I learned from that is that I do a lot better when I stick to design in the game, uh, you know, both for my own sanity as well as uh, enthusiasm. The business side, you know, while necessary, can get, can really distract you. So, done everything I can, and that's another reason we're doing crowdfunding, so I can focus and be 100% on the game's mechanics guiding it along the way. Uh, with the obviously stepping out of um, of where you've been professionally usually in designing the game mechanics of a tabletop game because a whole different set of requirements uh, a whole different set of limitations on how complex uh, giving systems or mechanics um, did, were you designing that primarily the tabletop game primarily by yourself or did you have uh, other uh, tabletop designers come on in the company no, this is this this is and remains a passion project. It's like, hey, can I make a tabletop game? You know, uh, it's kind of a challenge because I've never done it before, and it is very different. And one thing that I'm also struggling with is, you know, um, it's kind of strange. Let's let's talk about this because you guys have this insight into sort of the history and, and where the the tabletop uh, community is now that I don't, and it's very curious to me because. Obviously, you know, a Byzantine set of rules, especially if you look at some of the later versions. And the trend seems to be much more towards uh, very quick and open systems. I mean, D&D 5th edition is super streamlined. And in some ways, that's different from what I'm used to and growing up with. And in some ways, it's more the same to classic D&D, right? And I think there's a sort of movement for this stuff, I forget what it's called. We're old school renaissance, the OSR. OSR, baby. OSR, that's what it is. And I think what you're seeing now is a little bit of OSR creeping into modern tabletop uh, RPGs. But you, I mean, you tell me, what, what are we seeing? So Spe specifically, if you want to talk about uh, the history of RPG design, what what I saw an article on recently, they're calling it the fourth generation of OSR. The first generation of OSR was all about, all about making modules, using the open source for third edition D&D to make modules for classic D&D that was no longer being published. 
to where you could only buy these books either by pirating the PDF or going to a used bookstore. And so they wanted to make modules for the older version. That's where the OSR got started. Fourth generation is taking some of the game design concepts, some of the high-level ideas behind classic D&D and Traveler and Tunnels and Trolls and all of that 1970s gaming, and then using that with game mechanics that are almost wholly divorced from D&D, that don't have necessarily classes or armor class or saving throws or hit points, but they're still heavily influenced by a lot of the same concepts that went into classic D&D, 0th edition D&D, or uh, AD&D. But what you're talking about is exactly right, is that you're seeing a lot of games now that aren't D&D derivatives, but are nevertheless heavily influenced, but their design philosophy is heavily influenced by D&D, and so it's coming back in a, in a different way. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about what we talked about prior to the show here, and and I have no relation to this game. I'm not, I'm not showing from them or anything, but it's called Open Legends, and it's an open source rule set, very streamlined, where it's basically make up your own classes, make up your own weapons and abilities, and just go for it with a very loose structure of rules in place to sort of guide you along. That I found, that, that seems like sort of like what you're talking about. The, it seems like the penultimate version version of where this is headed. And I know that my friends who tried it have immediately switched from Pathfinder to it, for example. Well, let me let me try and explain what I feel is the, the reason you see that. And, and in my opinion, this is the most important lesson that the OSR people have learned thus far. Because one of the thing, one of the techniques they use to try and, and revive these old style games is they tried to figure out and study like, how did the old gamers actually play? Like, what were all these rules for? And I, I think the, the most insightful thing I've ever uh, read, a couple of people that have expressed this idea or something like it, is that the, the point of the game is to give the game master or the referee a framework to work with. Uh, it's something that the game master uses to create this sort of systems and games that people like to play so in 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 a bad game of dungeons and dragons it feels too much like a board game where you've got this menu of options and your character does this and there's a monster and the only really meaningful way to interact with it is to kill it right but right. Uh, this this sort of simplified game system that says okay these are the tools that you use to give your players what you want. This is what the players need to know how to play. So here's the character. You know, here's your character. This is what your character uh, is good at. This is what your character is bad at. And then whatever you want to do, you know, the game's open to you. And I think that's that's the most that's the strongest thing that that the OSR community has discovered that the game system. Not everything needs to be written out in the game system. The game master is going to devise those mini games or those mini systems on the spot. It's a lot like how I DM. Um, my style of DMing, it's it's sort of like, I, I, I you know, as as the rules got more complicated, I left it to the players to to sort it out. I was more interested in the story flow of the combat. You know, what epic things were people trying? And then we'd sort of like either, I'd, I'd call them 
players say, hey, is there a rule for that? Or should we make one here? And then we'd sort of like set goals and, and, and have fun sort of defining it that way. And my, and my modules were very loose. In fact, I love things like city adventures and wilderness adventures where anything can happen and we just sort of ad-libbed along the way. I would sketch out a framework of the world and I would sketch out a framework of the, situ the, the political situation or the adventure situation. And, I want, and sometimes I would hand out cards so everyone would have different pieces of, of information about this world and they would get XP for sharing that or bringing that up in the game. So I had the players sort of telling each other what this world was about along the way. And we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, it's not a style for everybody. I know that some of my friends really want to minimize their characters and, and, and have the chance to, you know, um, to show that they've done a good job with that. But as for me, this is the really the, the way that I DM. Yeah, no, you, you definitely, that's a lot of old school flavor in there. And you've got the, the thing that you said that was really important is, is there a rule for this or do we make one up on the spot? That's the key insight. That's the key takeaway for me, which is you don't need to have a rule for everything spelled out. That's how you get the D&D 3.5 game, which is actually, I think it's a great game, but mm -hmm. it's it's not an ideal role-playing game It's because it, it, it's a little too crunchy. I, I had an experience where I started DMing with uh, 3.5, and I had to switch uh, just because it, even though I had knew the rule set, it was too heavy. Uh, uh, it was always getting in the way. Let me... Um... Let me go into a little bit of game design philosophy for the game I'm working on right now. There is a core mechanic that most of the rules are built off of. And all of the specific skills and skill use and um, other rules are all examples of how to apply that core mechanic to different situations, how to apply it to combat, how to apply it to lock picking, how to apply it to vehicle chases, how to apply it to shooting guns. And the reason all the mechanics are examples is they're intended to be a pattern for the game master to learn how to use that core mechanic flexibly in any situation they want so that when they encounter a new situation that I haven't written an explicit rule for, they can just say, oh, okay, I set the challenge rating at this, this is what you're going to be using to go for it, and this is what the success uh, levels mean. Easy. It is, so all of the rules themselves and all of the examples of skill use are nothing more than a tutorial to help teach game masters how to apply the specific rule to a bunch of situations that aren't directly covered in the rule book. That's the theory that I'm working off of. That's what I'm trying to implement. But that's really interesting because it's sort of like, and I agree with a lot of that, and providing a set of philosophies about the approach to designing systems for the game that the, that the DM can learn. But how are you finding, one thing I worried about when I thought about that was, um, you know, the, the DM's burden, right? We, we're in a time where everyone, everyone has, has a lack of time and, you know, it's hard enough to, to, to put a traditional module together. You know, it, how, do, how do we overcome the DM's burden, especially if they, if, you know, how do you keep the, the philosophy straightforward enough that they can easily conjure up uh, and apply the rules to new situations? Well, I mean, how, how do you multiply the content available to you in Diablo 2? Randomly generated dungeons. Um, yeah, and Traveler, back to Traveler, Traveler has a lot of that in it. 
you got it. Uh, so, so the the my, I have two answers to that question. The 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 first one is reduce character creation to zero. It make make it as short and sweet as possible. Um, this this does a, it does a couple of things. Not only does it, it achieve your goal, but it also makes it. <clears throat> it it's not hard as so hard on players when their characters die, because they're like, oh, I will get a new one in five minutes. Uh, the other thing is, um, in D and D, it's the random monster table. In another type of game like Traveler, you know, randomly generated events or planets or things like that. The sort of thing where if you ha if the DM has a toolbox that includes those kinds of systems, you can generate parts of the game that don't need to be written ahead of time. Uh, because when when you say module, um, you're thinking like I think like I grew up on all the story games and the D&D 2nd edition and the D&D 3rd edition games where they had these cool stories that were written out or like in you know in a World of Warcraft perspective like a quest like hey this thing is happening mm -hmm. so go here do the thing kill the bad guys and you know come back and you'll get some loot and um, yeah I think the penultimate version uh, I mean for me it does the, the heavy Modules, guided story thing, Peach with the the, Dra the Dragonlance series. I I was blown away when I first saw that because, I mean, there was a whole epic storyline woven into that, and things happened in sequences, and I'd never seen that before. It was always just a room to room dungeon crawl before that. Yeah, and and all you need, uh, all you need uh, to get rid of the DM's burden is, um, it. Not every game has to be a dungeon crawl, but but. If you use those sorts of tools that that have been rediscovered by the OSR community, uh, random monster tables and stuff like that, you know the much maligned random monster table, right? Um, you play you play a few games like that, and if if your dungeon master is creative enough to make those events fit into the world seamlessly, you'll find that the players are telling the stories themselves. And and all you have to do all you have to do in between sessions is you know keep your stock of material and you know when when they come up with cool ideas run with it. Yeah, I, I much prefer that approach. I like you know what I'll do is I'll maybe I'll have a binder and I'll have a couple of storylines rolled up and I'll have a couple of uh, an outline with uh, key story events. But not much more than that. Everything else in between, we sort of win, you know, along the way. And I've done that style, and I've also done where it's literally just a dungeon crawl, and we are randomly generating rooms as we go. And it's kind of hilarious because I don't know if you've ever played that childhood game where um, you fold a piece of paper into thirds, and someone draws a head, and then you fold it over so they can't see, and someone else has to draw the body, and you fold it over, and someone else has to draw the legs. Uh, sometimes you get really interesting results that way, and working with your players where they don't know exactly where you're headed with the story and you're not sure either, it can sort of, it, it, I mean, it's hit or miss, but when it works, I think it's really entertaining. Oh, uh, yeah, totally. I think, um, and, and it, it's different for every DM, but I love the way you're using the word story because you definitely, you're still trying to tell a story. Um, and I guess my perspective is that it, if a if a non-player character 
it becomes an antagonist, I can work with that. Like, uh, you know, an evil cleric, you know, escapes for the third time, you know, maybe this time he killed the bard. And, and believe me, when you play fifth edition, please kill the bard. Uh, <laughs> you know, he'll, he'll become a villain. You don't have to. You don't have to have written that sort of thing ahead of time. On the other hand, you could. Yeah, I mean, having a backstory can help in the sense that, well, I know that there's this evil god and he's got this cult of people and they like to do this sort of thing. So you can always come in. You can always tie what they do together. But especially in the terms of, of the dungeon crawl, it's all about the survival. How deep can we go? How how do we avoid fighting? How or how, how can we win if we have to fight? You know, how can we get at that treasure? You know, that's a fun game in and of itself. I guess um, you know, taking taking that idea into video games, one type of MMO that I always wanted to see was I call it a mini MMO because I don't see this as hundreds of players or thousands of players online, but maybe only at any one time, 100 or 200 logged in to a single uh, shard. Uh, but it's sort of like an, an infinite dungeon where it's really just about how deep can you go and we sort of randomly generate things along the way. So I guess it's like Diablo 1, right? A little bit of Diablo 1, but it never really stops. And a rogue-like. Um, and, and it's a, yeah, and it's, a, and, it's a, and it's an MMO type of situation where it's not just a couple of players, but but enough to make it in interesting. Obviously, you know, watching anime, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, Sword Art Online or, um, God, I, I don't know the Japanese game, but like, uh, was it How to Date a Girl in a Dungeon? You know, with Hestia? I can't remember. Um, where they, they have the idea of a central town and sort of an infinite, uh, infinite number of levels. Well, in Sword Art Online, it was finite, but it was... It was that sort of progression where you're trying, all the players are working together to try to unlock the next gate, unlock the next section together. I thought that that would make an interesting, where it's not a whole world, but it's just sort of this procedural dungeon crawl where players are working together to unlock more and more of it. Uh, I, I would definitely give that sort of game a try. That, that sounds like it could be a lot of fun. Uh, especially if you made character death permanent, that would be interesting. Oh yeah, that would be an interesting twist to it. Yeah, I think that that would definitely matter more. That because that would really it, you would definitely answer the question: How deep can you go? Mm-hmm. Well, the you know I'm always interested in the idea of players pushing themselves. And in, in Ember, the um, the mining is not a passive thing; it's an active encounter where you can continue to try to mine for as long as you you want to to push for more rare resources, which pop at the tail end. Um, but if you if you go too far, your thumper mech, which is doing the mining, and you're defending it from raging creatures, gets destroyed, and you lose all the resources. So that, that's sort of my version of permadeath and ember for that same sort of gameplay mechanic, where it's really about how far you can push it. I, I'm just fascinated by that. Oh yeah, that I love that. That's classic uh, dungeon crawl. If, if you get those types of players in the thumpers, they're going to love that game. Um, the, the chat's delayed by a few seconds, so I want to go back. A couple of people have made some insightful comments that may help you out uh, sure. with, your, with your RPG questions. Bradford Walker in the chat uh, calls it RPG's Schrodinger's game, especially when you do that sort of random generated thing. Uh, not not much is certain until you actually get to the actual gameplay. When He says, uh, little is certain until play fixes it so. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> 
Isn't that every DM's module that they crafted over? It's like the, the best made plans, you know? Never exactly. survive first contact with the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right, because the, the, the game masters and the... Well, everything just went to hell. I don't know if you know why I wrote these down. You know what? Let's just see what they do. Um, a great advice, in my opinion, from John Mollison also says... Good notes taken during the game are far more useful than the volumes of prepared material. Uh, so oh. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I, ne I neither prepare anything nor do I take notes during the game, so I'm bad. It takes a good DM, though, to, to roll. I mean, uh, with, with an evolving storyline where you, you, you only, have, only have the initial story hook. But that's part of the thrill for me. That's, that's harder than any rule set, getting any rule set right. Uh, um, and I would argue it's actually more fun of the two. Yeah. You no, know, now that I think about it, there's a website that I always send uh, DMs to because uh, he basically taught me how to DM. Uh, it's a guy named Justin Alexander. Um, that, and so that's where I get a lot of my advice from. That's where I learned to DM. Um, you'd, you'd like a lot of the stuff that he says, and you're not going to agree with most of it, I think, but uh, but you'll definitely enjoy reading. Um, I'll send you the, cool. the link for that afterwards. Yeah, no, I'd love to see that. I mean, I just love to see all the different approaches, and a lot of it depends on the players you have, too. Uh, um, you're going to have to sort of tailor it to whoever your friends are and how they like to play. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's see... Well, well um, I'm really, let me just say, before we move on, I'm really excited to see, um, I, I mean, I love video games, and I love what you're doing with Ember, but I'm really excited to see uh, what comes out of, of Crixa. Uh, that sounds like a really fun game that I'd like to sit down and play. I mean, thank you for that, because, you know, I've been looking around, and I really haven't found a Starship Adventure game tabletop. Maybe there is. Does it, you know, some... I'm sure somebody's made one that's caught some level of popularity. Are there any good ones I should be looking at? Uh, I've no, I haven't heard of any. I'm actually not a, a spaceship game type of guy. I'm I'm pretty much a strict fantasy guy with the the occasional cyberpunk thrown in. What do you say, Daddy Warpig? Uh, honestly, I don't know. I've never looked for a, uh, a a game that is focused on. Um, the starship level uh, of player control. You do have games like, uh, depending on which version of Star Wars you're running, where you have a number of different players who are all on the ship, and you have one person who is usually the tech head who likes upgrading everything and tinkering with stuff, uh, but never where like each player at the, and I'm not saying they're not out there, just I'm not aware of any, where each player has their own ship and they're working in concert as a small fleet. I mean, that does sound interesting. That sounds really, really cool. And the Star Wars game I'm playing currently is sort of converging on that. We have like six or seven players, but three of us have uh, our own ships now because we've been acquiring them from various means uh, <laughs> 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 and, uh, and been upgrading them for different things. One person's upgraded their freighter to be a pirate hunter. Um, I stole an Imperial shuttle and have turned it into a luxury um, a luxury passenger vessel and another person has a, a, a fighter, uh, like a Y-wing fighter that they're trying to trick out to be the nastiest 
uh, fighter that they can. So I, I guess we're kind of edging towards that area, but I've never seen a game that has that as a, as a focus. Okay, well, I'm either doing something really new or doing something that I really shouldn't do because nobody's going to want to play. <laughs> but that's what—that's why it's a passion project. It's, it's really a kind of a, a grand experiment here. Many people who are... the Ever since the introduction of 3rd edition D&D, the production values that are expected of RPGs has shot through the roof. People expect now, you know, full color page layouts, full color art, basically what you're giving into or what you're putting into Crixa. And I'm just wondering, um, how is, have you found, uh, I got lost to the real question on the way through that, <laughs> through that detour. The real question was this. So there has grown up um, in the role playing community it's become more and more specialized and more and more professionalized where hobbyists outside of the OSR, which is was one of the good things about the OSR is because hobbyists could go there to get published. Um, and the expectations for artwork and graphic design weren't as high. But it is, it seems to me, a lot more clannish than it used to be. And I'm wondering, on a professional level, have you had a lot of interactions with uh, the industry, as people call it, the... Um, people who have been or are in the professional RPG sphere, have you interacted with them a lot? No, not at all. It seems very clicky the more I look into it, uh, yeah. which is a concern for, for marketing the game. Um, it's like, you know, how do you make inroads? I think, I think that I'm pretty much looking at doing an open source version of the game, sort of like how open... Legends did it as a way to sort of like get direct to the community and bypass the gatekeepers. Um, and one thing that's worked for us in terms of Ember is really starting with the community first. This is why why all our crowdfunding succeeds so well, even though we're crowdfunding really basic stuff. It's like we don't even have you know a working game yet. We have an art demo. We have concept art. You know how you get stuff funded just based on that. And the answer is really build building a community around it. So I don't know the answer to that. I think that the insular nature and of, of, of I'm, let's just put it this way. I'm starting to believe cons don't matter anymore. Like they used to. Uh, but you're not reaching as many players as you can and if you find some other way to do it online. Like, well, uh, let me, I, 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 oh, I, go ahead. You mean if you're talking about gaming, gaming cons in particular? I I would agree. I'm I'm definitely part of the community that doesn't go to cons. Uh, last show, I talked with uh, with someone, Bradford C. Walker, who is all about playing at the cons. You know, his local con, and uh, and and it's totally it's two different communities uh, as far as gaming goes. Exactly. I think, but you have to find a community in order to to succeed in finding a market for your game now. And one thing that a lot of people don't realize is when you count con attendance, uh, like give me a number, like what's a, what's a con and, and how much was their attendance? If I remember right, Origins is about 30,000 and Gen Con is a little more, but about the same. Okay, um, so let's, let's take that as an example. 30,000 is not, not actually 30,000 people. Did you know this about cons? that what they measure, what they tend to publicize, this is like 
how we how games used to publicize sales. They would sell, they would publicize their sell in numbers, not their sell through numbers. Um, oh. What that means is they would publicize, you know, how many copies they sold to retailers, not actually how many copies ended up in consumers' hands. Or when they reported concurrency numbers for their online games, they would report basically things like, you know, they would add up their peaks through the week sometimes. It got really kind of shady for a while. Well, for a lot of cons, including PAX, and PAX is the one where I learned about this, when they say 30,000, they're measuring uh, people who go through the turnstiles every day, people who badge in every day or, or go through the, the doors. And so you're actually, you know, what we learned with PAX is that we had the actual number of people we were reaching is divided by the number of days on that. Oh, boy. So if a con is 30,000 and it's a three-day thing, then it's 10,000. Now, that's not true of everybody. I'm sure that some people are publicizing how many badges they sold. Um, but... You know, but when you're competing with other cons that are inflating their numbers through this sort of turnstile technique, you end up sort of using their measure, their, their yardstick, in order to, to be able to compare apples to apples with your competitors. So I don't know. So I, but I think that con numbers, the point is, is that, okay, you've got 30,000 at Gen Con. I think you can reach a whole lot more people online with some video work and have it be a lot stickier than the... A small percentage of people are con that are stopped by your booth and see your new game. I I would I would definitely bet on that. I mean, just think of think of all the exposure uh, you get going on tabletop or you know Geek and Sundry's other shows like uh, with Will Wheaton. You know, he gets a lot of exposure. Mm -hmm. um, th that's yet another community uh, in in tabletop gaming, a much maligned community, but. Uh, I mean, they've they've got a lot of fans. Uh, absolutely, uh, the, the, I don't think the cons matter so much. PAX might be different, even though PAX's numbers might be inflated. They they do they do sell out instantly every year. Yeah, uh, I mean, PAX PAX can be very influential, but even then, you know, you know um, you're, if you're if you're a, 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 an indie booth off to the side, you know, what fraction of people are actually stopping by your booth? Not not, not a whole lot. So I think the numbers in terms of, I mean, I... Yeah, I yeah, guess, like converting converting that, that attendance into, you know, actual eyeballs on your project. That's totally different. Exactly, because you have to take that into account, too. I've seen a lot of uh, indie video game developers do this, where they go after mainstream press articles because they think that's going to bring them exposure, and they go after uh, shows, and, they, and shows cost money and time. And what I... I found is that building a digital community online is not only infinitely cheaper and less time away from developing the game. Uh, I think it's better. I think, you know, it's not easy, but I think putting the effort into that is paying off, at least on the video game side, a lot more than us than, than what I've done I, before with cons and things like that. I think selection bias might have something to do with it. Uh, it's when you get people signing up for your, you know, video game, watching your video game videos and stuff like that. There are people who are interested already in what you're doing. And uh, when you go set up at a con, the people going there are people who like going to that con. You know what I mean? The, the, there isn't necessarily an overlap there. Exactly. And, and this kind of comes back to the original point, which was, hey, there's a close-knit team of designers out there. Have you interacted with them a lot? And I think the nature of the question was, 
you know, what's the value of, of either interacting with them a lot or not interacting with them a lot, and what are the risks? And to my point of view, it's like, I think that, that, that this insular group of designers that are prolific uh, have fan bases, right? And if you can reach their fan base, uh, if you become friends with them or, you know, you partner up with stuff, that can be extremely valuable. Uh, and being outside of it, I think, is definitely harder. But at the same time, I think there's so many other tools now that you can use to create your own digital communities. I mean, Discord has been crazy for us. I, I'll hop onto Discord and I'll go on voice and I'll do, we even call them cheap chats. And normally we only do them every couple of weeks on a Sunday, but I'm usually there, especially during fundraisers, I was there every day, just impromptu reaching out to people. And, you know, Discord is great because it's a persistent chat. I mean, if you go away and you come back, you can scroll back and read the history. That's what really makes it kind of unique. It's as, as well as a really polished and easy and fun to use uh, user interface. But, um, I think there's a, a lot of tools out there that can do that. Now, as far as, you know, game design influence, uh, um, yeah, I guess I don't have the benefit of bouncing questions off of people already in, in, in the industry. But I'll tell you one thing. When we built WoW, we didn't know anybody. People said we would fail because none of us were MMO veteran designers, and we had never made an MMO before in the history of the company. And the teams we brought on had never made an MMO. And yet... That didn't stop us. So, you know, I think, no, I don't know that community and I don't have the benefit of, of bouncing ideas off of them uh, or even accessing part of their audience if they like what I'm doing. But at the same time, I'm kind of used to that working in that environment where I don't have that kind of support and I have to go learn it all and then build it from scratch. I, um, like I said, I'm, I'm designing my own game and so, um, at some point in the future, when I want to start getting uh, moved beyond just the rules and start putting graphic design and art together, uh, I'm really fascinated with, as an outsider, how you put that together. Because it's obvious to me you've got high production values and you pick some, you, you pick some just some incredible artists. Uh, I've been honestly, while I've been listening to you guys, I've been flipping through um, uh, Cole Price's uh, his portfolio on ArtStation. He just has some amazing, incredible pieces. And so uh, I just, I find that whole discussion of how you uh, started putting the book together, put the rules together and got your art together, because it seems like it's come together really, really well. Have you seen the, 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 the small 20-page uh, book we did for Ember with the design vision doc? No, I haven't. Uh, there's a, there's a, we generated a PDF and a print version for this and it was actually my dry run at laying out high production value game rules for example i was actually looking at rpg rule books for, for inspirations on the graphic design and um you know that was that was very interesting you, you know uh i had to learn a program called adobe InDesign, but i kind of had a background in some book layout way back from when the mac first hit and people were using PageMaker, and uh so well, that knowledge, I mean, for good or bad, the programs haven't changed that much. That knowledge sort of translated to when I had to put together this book recently. And then and, um, I'm, I'm a photographer, and I, and, and, and I also do a lot of, so I do a lot of uh, um, post-production on, on photos. So I'm very familiar with Photoshop. And then I'm also a 3D artist for hard surface modeling. I can't do characters, but I, you know, I uh, have worked in the industry in early in my career as a 3D modeler, and I... 
over the past two years, I've picked it up again uh, with modern programs. So the combination of those skills has kind of allowed me to lay out this book very quickly. And of course, the tr tremendous art that's provided by Cole Price and everybody else makes that so much easier to do. I think, I think good art is, 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 is like you said, that's really important these days. People expect it. And one thing I've always been good at is going out and, and finding talent. And I was able to do that prior to the internet and I was able to do that after the internet. I just, I, if you're a fan and, and you, you follow these sites and you know the art that you like, go talk to these people because nine times out of 10, they're gonna answer you back. And you, and you might just find a connection on a project or something that they get excited about and, and you can work out, you can work something out. Um, you know, but if you if you never talk to them, if you never reach out to them, it's never going to happen. So I don't know what the secret is, and obviously it's easier now that I've got a background and games behind me. But I've been doing this pretty much all my life. I mean, when I was starting out in games, completely unknown, I would go to universities. I would go to like some of the best art schools, and, so, and I'd go to and, and I'd go over to MIT, and I would just start looking for people, and. I don't wait for people to come to me. I've never recruited that way. I've always said, I want that person or I want that person. And I go out and I, and I do everything I can to, to get them on board. I've got one last question about the, the game itself. Are you planning on rules for naval combat? <laughs> Uh, I'm trying, I, 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 you know, I get asked that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> There's no actual, there are no oceans in Ember. So the only naval battles would have to be, I don't know, PVP belly bumping contests. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think, I think you've got to weigh 300 pounds and we're killed. <laughs> That's the, the minimum bar. <laughs> Either that or it's going to turn into another anime. Like, uh, um, I don't know if you, there's a lot of anime fans in the channel, but there's one where where there's uh, there's a sports game where, where women fight with their butts and boobs, I guess. It's on, yes. on in a pool. I haven't watched it yet, but I mean, yeah. So, yeah, I don't want to go there with my naval combat, so I think we're talking, you know, big guys caber tossing and, <laughs> and <laughs> well, 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 a lot of beer. <laughs> When when Cricks of the anime comes out, we'll have all the all the naval battles you want. There you go. <laughs> when when we finally go full. That's when you. That's when you. Right. That's when you'll know you've made it. Uh, yeah. You know, World of Warcraft. No, CEO of NAS, screw that. I have my own anime based on my IP. That's it. That's how <laughs> you know you've made yeah. it. Exactly, and and I, and I have waifu pillows of all my main characters. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, we've been going for about an hour, uh, we, we can talk as long as you like, we don't have, uh, a, a, uh, time limit, but I'd like to go to another topic that we wanted to talk about really quick, uh, before we wrap things up. Someone else in the chat was also asking about this, uh, what's going on with, uh, Legacy WoW? Yeah, I'm starting to get more and more questions about that because they just, I guess Blizzard just shut down another uh, fan server for uh, Vanilla WoW. 
And I guess the guy had been working on it for four years. And I don't know. I don't know why they do this, but they, they put their server up in an easy to uh, take down place like the United States with strong IP laws. So this server was taken down in like a day. And, and um, on one hand, you know, it's really unfortunate that this guy who worked for four years on this server had the server taken down. On the other hand, if, if you're going to do that and you're serious about it, go set up your infrastructure in somewhere else, you know, uh, that isn't reachable by U.S. copyright law. And third, Blizzard is within all their rights to do that. I mean, it's, it's, it's their game. They, they invested in it. They created the universe. They created the game. They're responsible for its popularity. Uh, they have every right to do that. The part I don't like is how Blizzard won't give an answer on legacy servers. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's been a year or so now where we did the petition when, when they shut down Nostalrius to get Blizzard to make legacy servers. We got it big enough to where several hundred thousand people signed the petition. We were, we were talked about uh, by, by prominent YouTubers in the WAP community. And then, you know, I promised to take the petition, the printed petition to Mike. And I printed out the whole thing. I made a video and I, and I met that with Mike and we talked for several hours about it. Um, especially from my perspective of having been team lead on the project about what it would take to get it up and running again. And then to have them turn around on his team and, and, and give them the red carpet treatment and everything else. And then absolute silence. Like it was painful to get e email replies about it afterwards. And it was always sort of like, well, wait until BlizzCon or and things like this. And when BlizzCon rolled around, they banned questions about Legacy WoW. You could not even ask them. They would be filtered out. They would be rejected out of hand. How, how do you now actually look at that with any sort of belief that that effort was sincere on Blizzard's part to address the demand in the community of legacy servers? So, that part is just, um, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember at the time when you did the position and you met with Mike Morham, right? Uh, mm -hmm. It was a uh, you. You interpreted their silence to be that uh, they're going to go through whatever you know. Everybody's going to talk about it and think about it, and they're going to come up with the right with the answer, whatever the answer is going to be. You know, they're going to come up with the answer, and then we'll hear about it. And that that never happened. And, yeah. and so they're just just silencing every you know we're just not going to talk about it which is a re it's a really weird thing to do i don't understand it i mean why not give a definitive answer like we've thought about it we thank everyone for their input but you know uh for for various reasons we decided this is not the time perhaps someday in the future we'll revisit the issue i remember at blizzard giving interviews we would always that was kind of our go-to like we, we knew we wanted to do console games at some point, but we weren't ready. We we would we would at least give an answer. We would say, listen, we have no plans at this time, but we do love consoles. A lot of us play it, and at one point we're going to revisit it. Um, I think fans at this point need a better answer, especially after everything everyone has done to demonstrate to Blizzard. Not only did we show that there's a demand for it, not only did we show that you can make money for it. I mean, I, I pretty much laid out with my, you know, based on how much we did on, to build WoW, what would cost and everything else. Not only did we show that we can overcome the technical 
technological problems, uh, some of the data loss that occurred and things like that. I mean, the Starius teams sent over after their meeting a huge doc with everything needed to, to reconstruct what was missing. Um, and, you know, and I was pitching in ideas there too. To, to go through all that and have the fans so in a fervor about it and then not give them a definitive answer, I think is really dropping the ball. It's not the blizzard that I'm used to. It, it seems unblizzard-like, doesn't it? <clears throat> and, and yeah, and in the meantime, we get, you know, remastered levels of Diablo 2 and, and, and a StarCraft remaster coming out. I mean, it's just like, wait, you just said in an interview, one thing they held up was they did an interview where they on Legacy WoW, they said, well, look look at our interview when we talked about rebooting uh, some of our older RTSs. They just aren't fun anymore. You know, that, that time has passed. And yet here they are remastering StarCraft. <laughs> yeah. Weird. I, I don't understand. And, and the amount of, you know, um, maybe it's an issue because there's a live game out there, right? There's a game out there that's very different from what Vanilla WoW was. And it's not something that's been put to bed yet. It's still generating vast amounts of income. And, but I didn't get a sense that there was any sort of financial worry about it. I did get a sense that there was a quality worry about it. That, oh, if we put out something next to WoW, it's just not going to look as good and we're going to get dinged for it. And it's like, no, I, I think that's wrong. I think players would totally understand that this is a nostalgia romp and that the expectations for, you know, everything would be different. Um, and... You know, and I can't tell you how many times I sat down and ran the math with, with all the stuff that I know having launched WoW. And it just comes out as money for Blizzard every time I do it. So I simply do not understand this apathy. And I especially do not understand the complete, I think, irresponsibility of not giving this huge fan base an answer. Well, that's too bad. I mean, I won't say that they deserve it. They they deserve an answer, but I mean, it it seems like, I for lack of a better word, it, it's the right thing to do to just say, "Hey guys, no," <laughs> you know. It's obvious that the answer is no, never. Mm -hmm. But they could just say, "Sorry guys, we're not interested." Yeah, um, it's just very painful to be left hanging, isn't it, for for over a year now. So yeah. The uh, the <laughs> the uh, World of Warcraft vanilla fans as jilted ex-lovers. <laughs> <laughs> sad but sad but true. I like my humor dark, by the way. Well, oh, oh okay. <laughs> so Diablo two is, is much more your game than Diablo three. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I hate to say it too, but all will be for they can jilt uh, us all they want. But as soon as they announce Wild Legacy, all will be forgiven, right? Those fans will come right back around. <laughs> there's, there's no doubt. I, I didn't even play Vanilla. I started, <laughs> I started playing Burning Crusade, and I'll tell you what. I, I, I had so much more fun spending seven hours in um, Blackrock Depths than I did going from Red Zone to Blue Zone to Green Zone to Purple Zone in, uh, in Burning Crusade. Uh, I, I, I get why there's a lot of nostalgia for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe there'll be a return to old school MMOs, just like uh, we're talking about, OG, you know, OGR. 
tabletop. I don't know. That's, that's a great, yeah, definitely. OSR tabletop, o, OSR old school. Um, XP penalty on death, old school MMOs. Yeah, OSR. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the acronym. So a uh, related question from the chat. Macario Patrick uh, wants to know uh, what your opinion on, is on a Firefall private server. Uh, uh, I guess it could be done. You can make a, pir uh, a pirate private server of anything. Um, I know that there was a project at, when they shut the servers down to do a lot of uh, data packet capture from the Firefall servers. And it's possible. Um, you know, obviously, it would, it would face the same legal issues. They'd get shut down left and right. Um, obviously nothing that we could engage in or that's like sort of like instant road to, to lawsuit. Um, would I like to see it? Yeah, just like I'd like to see vanilla WoW servers. You know, it's a, it's a secret pleasure. <laughs> cool. All right. I, I think we're just about out of time. Daddy Warpig, last chance for any uh, questions or thoughts from you? Uh, I might have other things I'd like to ask a question about, but I don't need to do it tonight. I uh, very much appreciate you taking the time to come on, uh, Geek Gavin. I hope uh, when uh, when your next round of funding for Ember goes uh, live, um, we'll toss that out there so people can come and check that out. Oh, very cool. Appreciate that. Yeah, I think you know doing that through, like I said, grassroots communities and, 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 and outreach really, really pays off, and I'd love to do that on your show. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, uh, not to speak for Daddy Warpig, but we'll we'll bring on Geek Gab Prime for for a show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, no, seriously, uh, that was a lot of fun. Anything else you want to say or add before we wrap it up? No, I just really enjoyed talking about the tabletop portion. Um, you know that you know that that part's fascinating to me, and like I said, Crixa uh, is. Something that I'm definitely planning on, on completing here for the first rule sets and getting out there. And I want to be more plugged into the tabletop community, and this was a great way just to get everyone's insight on it. So thank you. And if you are in the tabletop community, please follow me at Grums and give me your input. I, I want to learn everything about it because it's brand new to me. Uh, from a, um, Not from a playing side, but definitely from a, a business and a uh, game design side. Well, definitely. Well, you just earned a lot of tabletop fans uh, tonight. I've got your Twitter account in the comments below the video, as well cool. as as well as the link to Ember's website. So, people who are interested in Crixa and Ember and uh, following you on Twitter, they got it. Should we warn them about Saturdays? Yeah, if <laughs> if, if if you're like DW and and you uh, browse around the young and impressionable, don't. Follow Grums on Saturdays. Yeah, he's, Saturdays. He's, he's got a lot of fans that post a lot of good stuff. <laughs> and, and we do retweet. So, uh, yeah, but that's only on Saturdays. Every other day of the week, we're safe. <laughs> and and then you'll come back and they're like, "Oh, now I get the navel joke. That was so stupid when I first listened to it, but now it's funny." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening, uh, and especially those of you who joined us live in the chat. Um, I want to say if, if uh, you like what you hear, you can get this show and all the other Geek Gab shows 
on youtube.com slash geekgab. Or if you want to do a podcast, we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play. Usually if you can get free podcasts there, you can get us. Just search for Geek Gab. Uh, and if you're on YouTube, get notified of our shows. Please hit the subscribe button. And after you subscribe, hit the bell so that you can get your email alerts so you know when we're going live. Uh, on behalf of Daddy Warpig, our special guest, Mark Kern, uh, and everybody here at Geek Gab, thank you for listening. Have a good night and game on. <laughs>